Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Father, I thank you for these friends. I thank you for friends that I've known a long time. I thank you for friends that I'm getting to know. Uh, new, new friends that you've brought our way. Father, I pray now just for those who are sick. Father, I pray for those in our body who have gone through COVID and still struggling with side effects. Father, for those who are waiting vaccines. Father, I pray for those who have had surgeries. Father, for those who are just brokenhearted. Those who feel isolated and separated from, from loved ones. Father, those who feel cut off from connection and, and disconnected or displaced. Father, I pray that you, would, that you would speak to them even now. Convince them of your love for them. Convince them of our love for them. Father, help us to be a family of, of people who are brought together because of your son, Jesus. Who are united through our baptism in him and through your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live as, a, as just a glimpse of the kingdom to come. Father, we might have a, a foretaste of the goodness of what you will one day bring when, when Jesus returns to make all things new. Father, may it be so. Um, for your glory and for our good. We pray it in Christ's name and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. We are jumping back into a series in the life of David. And so if you've been around here for very long, we've been going through the life of David, uh, trying to fight our way through COVID to stay in the life of David. But uh, we were there in the fall, took a little break for Christmas, took a little break for uh, January. And we're jumping back in for the last part of the book of 2 Samuel as we look at this man named David. Now, before we get into the details, I want to take one week today as we kind of jump back in and just talk with you about why it is we would study an Old Testament passage. Why would it is we would jump into a book in the Old Testament and study about a dead guy who's been gone for millennia at this point and why that's worth the investment of the next six or seven weeks of our life. Well, one is David's life's amazing. Uh, this is a guy who's a warrior. He's a poet. He's a singer-songwriter. Uh, he's, he's a leader. He's um, a man who is victorious in many arenas of life. He's a passionate man. He's a man, uh, the only one that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. And we see his courage and valor in his battles. We see his humility and his patience as he serves as a shepherd. We see uh, with, with David his vulnerability and affections in his prayer life. And we see um, his passion and his love and his loyalty and his relationships and, in, and even in his worship. So we see all this kind of dynamic things that are going on in the life of this man named David. But we also see his, his imperfections. As we, as we go through the first half of his life, everything seems like it's going up and to the right. And then you have this pivot event that we looked at last fall where, where David has an affair with someone named Bathsheba, then he covers it up. He keeps spiraling downward, commits murder. And from that point on, it feels like things begin just kind of a downward spiral or trajectory in his life. And it's a little bit confusing for us, but this complexity of his story and the tension and the kind of tug of war that you see there is part of what makes it interesting is the good and the bad and the ugly of his life, frankly, looks a little bit like the good and the bad and the ugly of our lives, the lives of our families and the lives of those around us. 
Now, it's been said David's life inspired more other works of art than anyone else in, in history. I may have known of David's Michelangelo. I was actually watching Goonies, good 80s film, and even know Goonies. Yes, you know Goonies. You got to know Goonies. You got to know Sloth and Chunk and those guys. And I watched Goonies with my kids and realized that David makes a cameo, kind of an awkward, irreverent, inappropriate cameo in Goonies even. But David shows up everywhere in our culture, so he's worth, he's interesting figure just to go study. But here's the thing. David was a man after God's own heart, but after all, he was just a man. So what makes it more interesting to study David than to study Princess Diana or Martin Luther King? or Steve Jobs, or some other, some other interesting person. Well, I wanna show you an even better reason to study a dead man in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Uh, it may seem strange to talk about an Old Testament character by going to the New Testament, but we're gonna to go to the New Testament, and we're gonna read a passage that tells us why we should study the Old Testament and why that should have significance for us. And in that, here's what I hope that you, that you walk away with today. I hope you walk away with a lens to help you understand your Bible. I wanna show you why it is we study the Old Testament, but I also wanna show you a little bit about how it is that we study the Old Testament and how it is we should come to the scriptures. So in Luke 24, this is just after Jesus has died upon a cross. He was buried in a tomb for three days and he was resurrected. And in this resurrection, uh, he makes an appearance to two ladies. They run out, begin spreading the word. Ripples begin to flow through Jerusalem and there's just kind of this buzz through the city. It's pre-social media, so you don't have any like photo shots or anything of the event yet. You just have this gossip of people excitedly telling everyone what's happened. And as that begins to kind of move out through the city, uh, it says that Jesus sort of cloaks himself or disguises himself. He doesn't hide himself, but he, he keeps it to where the people that see him as he walks up to them, they don't initially recognize him. And so Jesus just wanders up to two dudes on the street, which is kind of comical, right? So Jesus, they, they saw him die. They know he's in a tomb. They hear this rumor that he's been resurrected, but they're like, who knows? It could be two crazy ladies. I don't know. Maybe they were just distraught. And they imagined they saw him. And so they're not sure what happened. And Jesus walks up and he goes, so what are y'all talking about? And they kind of look at him like he's crazy. And there's, it, 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 honestly, if it wasn't such an intense scene in the moment, I think it'd be a little bit ironic and a little bit funny because Jesus walks up and goes, so what are y'all talking about? And they kind of look at him like, dude, are you the only, and they literally say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who has no idea about the events that happened? And I'm thinking Jesus in the back of his mind's going, I'm a little familiar with those events. You know, and they, they go on to say that the Jesus, this one that we thought was the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the one to come to save us was crucified and killed and our leaders handed him over and he was buried and we thought he was gone and we were all given up, but now we're not sure what to think because these ladies are announcing that he's, that he's risen from the dead and he's walking around again. And Jesus then replies to them and I wanna point out to you what it is that Jesus says in his answer to them because he goes and he says in verse 25, so Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, listen to what he says. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And can you imagine being these, these two gentlemen that are there and they're talking and Jesus walks up and he asks and inquires of them and they say it. And then finally he stops and he says, man, you foolish ones, you slow of heart. No one likes to be called slow, do you? 
Like, this is not good in any context. Like, we all want to be fast. None of us want to be foolish. We all always want to be smart. And so Jesus is, he's scolding them in a way for what it is they didn't see. And just a little bit later, Jesus is going to sit down with them. He's going to break bread. And all of a sudden, their eyes are going to be open and they're going to go, he's the one. And then Jesus is just going to disappear. And he's going to, he's going to vanish and they're not going to know what to do with it. But their hearts, and they're going to look and say, did not our hearts burn within us when he was explaining to us the scriptures? And so there's this thing that Jesus does. And, and the question I think you're left with after looking at this is, what was Jesus doing? Like, why did he make this strange appearance to these two guys and communicate all these things and explain, you should have seen it coming. You should have understand that the Messiah, the deliverer, the, the one who was to come had to suffer all these things. You should have understood all the Old Testament, all the, the, the Moses and the prophets, all of it pointed to me. You should have seen it coming, foolish one, slow of heart. All of it was pointing to me, he says. And then he disappears. I think he was wanting us to learn a lesson that he wanted to teach them. You notice when it says, uh, he, he says it was all right there in the scriptures. Now for them, the scriptures were the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament had not yet been written. And so the, that was gonna be written by the disciples a little bit later. Um, and so when Jesus is talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And when he says, uh, beginning with Moses, he's referring to the books of Moses, the first, first five books, the Pentateuch, that, that begin the, the Old Testament. And then he jumps to the prophets and the prophets are the books that in the Old Testament. So he's really saying everything in the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the ones that you know as the, that we know as the Old Testament is what he's referring to. Sometimes the Bible will call that the law and the prophets, but you see the, the way in which they explain it, but really speak to the same thing that we call the Old Testament. Now, why is this important for you and for me? And do you see what Jesus did? He, he says he started with Moses and he moved through the Old Testament and all the way through the prophets. So goes through the Old Testament, kind of gives a survey. And he says, all of this points to himself. He, he highlighted all the things that were concerning himself. And this gives us an important, uh, important guiding principle for how we're, to understanding the, how we're to understand the Bible. You see, when you think about what Jesus did, this is before Jesus ever, uh, the Old Testament was written before Jesus was ever born of a woman before Jesus ever walked around on the earth as a human being. So before Jesus ever arrived, all these things have been written and Jesus said, all of them pointed to me before I ever got here. So it gives us an important guiding principle for how we're to understand the Bible. And here, this is it, it all points to Jesus. Can you just say that with me? Can you say it all points to Jesus? That's, that's a guiding principle Jesus wants us all to understand about the scriptures and about what it means. In fact, another place Jesus points out and he says, not only do we need to know that that's our approach to scripture, he also says why it's so important. John 5, 39, 40 says, you search the scriptures. Jesus is again scolding someone for their lack of understanding, people that were supposed Bible scholars and should have known. And Jesus is saying, look, you miss, you're missing it. You're missing the main point. Notice what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus says, look, you, you're pouring yourself over the scriptures. You're studying it. You're memorizing it. You know all these things, but you're missing the main point. You, you're, you're diving into the scriptures because you think just in them, you're going to find life. He says, if, if, you, if you look in them and don't see me, you're never gonna find life because they testify about who I am, about what it is I came to do. And so if you study the scriptures, but miss the main point, 
you're never gonna experience the fulfillment of the scriptures. So Jesus is claiming that the entire Bible points to him. And he's also saying that he is the fulfillment of the promises that the Bible, that they've been looking forward to. He says, you think in them you have life, but you only have life if you come to me. So all these things point to the promises and all the promises point to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you read your scriptures apart from me, you're gonna miss the main point of it all. So Jesus has given them a warning, isn't he? He's giving us a warning, I think, too. And here's what I think he wants us to understand. The, the Bible is not just another piece of literature. That's, that's a well-written book that we ought to study. It's not just a book of wise sayings meant to be passed along one verse at a time. The Bible is not a book of moral precepts assembled as rules for us to follow. The Bible is not just a, a, a series of nice fables with a good moral application that helps us live a wiser and better life. It's not just a random collection of books assembled for our education. Now, the Bible, the Old Testament and the New is one coherent story, one connected story, one coherent book written by one supreme author. These are important things for us to understand as we come to the scriptures. This is that the Bible from beginning to end is one connected story. It's one coherent book and it has one supreme author. Now, when we talk about God as the author, um, you may be aware that many times you read the Bible and uh, it talks about many authors, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. That, that somehow, in some sense, all of the, the words that are scripture are words that God has breathed out. The theological term for that that we use is revelation. And as you think about revelation, what we mean is that God revealed himself to us through his word. So that God, as, the, as our creator, revealed himself to his creatures in terms that we could understand and he put those into words that we have in the Old and the New Testament. Now, it wasn't dictated or handed down verbatim. God used human authors in order to record these things and he superintended or oversaw the work to make sure that all he, that he wanted to be included in the scriptures were included there. And so he did it through these authors. And in that, it means he used their human gifts, their personalities, their styles, their experiences of many writers over many centuries, but produced one story and one coherent book. And so we talk about the, the supreme author who superintended or oversaw all that's there. And through the Holy Spirit, God ensured that everything he wanted to be included in scripture was included. That's why we oftentimes say that there's one author of scripture, even though we know there were many human authors who had part in it. But beyond that, the Bible also has one main subject and one overarching theme. And so if you think about the, the continuity of the scriptures, and you think about one connected story, one coherent book, one supreme author, there also is one main subject and one overarching theme, and that's this. God's plan to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ, in order to create his perfect kingdom. That's the, that, that's the, main, point, the, the main goal and the theme of scripture is that God saving the world through his son and through him is going to bring about a perfect kingdom. Now this means that as we, reach, uh, as we read any part of the scriptures, we need to read with that theme in mind, that wherever you turn and you begin to read, that that's the overarching thing, that it, it all points to Jesus and all points to Jesus' salva or salvation work in uh, bringing about our rescue and res restoration into a new kingdom. And so all of the scriptures point us in that direction. Now, here's the thing I realize is that for many of us, we didn't grow up in churches that taught the Bible. 
And so because of that, we, we maybe have some favorite verses from the Bible. We have some favorite stories. We have some things we're somewhat familiar with. But for a lot of people that I interact with, we just, we don't understand how it all fits together. In fact, a lot of times it can be really confusing. And so if you begin to open up the scriptures, you just think, man, I don't understand what this has to do with my life, or I don't understand what this has to do with Jesus. And I, I'm not sure what to do with certain sections of the scripture. And it can be an overwhelming thing at times. Here's what I want you to know if you feel that way. I don't want you to feel, first of all, I don't want you to feel bad about that. It's like you've never been taught. And so I want to encourage you that as a church, we desire to teach you so that you can understand these things. And we're confident that you can understand what the scriptures have to say. In fact, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will help you in order to understand the things that he has put into his word. And so I want you to know that I'm confident you can understand the Bible and that we were willing to help you do that. But let's jump in and think a little kind of big picture. How does the Bible fit together? First, remember that it all points to Jesus, both Old Testament and New Testament. So as you think about the way those two books work, the Old Testament really goes before Jesus. And so the Old Testament looks forward. The Old Testament looks ahead to the coming of Jesus, the promised rescuer king. So the Old Testament is a book of promise. It's a book that, that, that lays out for us the promises of what God's going to do through his son, Jesus. And so it looks, it anticipates the, the coming of Christ and the work of Christ. Now, the New Testament is, is a book of fulfillment. It looks backward to Jesus. And so if the Old Testament looks ahead to the promise, the New Testament looks backward to the fulfillment of the promise. And so it looks back at, at all that Jesus did through his death and resurrection and says it's through Jesus' work that the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. And this is the lens that we should look through the Bible as we read. But to get the full picture, you really need both the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't you? Otherwise, you're going to miss part of the story. Otherwise, you're not going to understand all it is that, that, that Scripture intends to teach us. In fact, if you don't know the Old Testament... It'll be impossible for you to understand the significance of the promises of the Passover lamb and the good shepherd, the suffering servant, the sacrifice once and for all, the promised king and the son of David and so much more. If you don't understand the Old Testament and all the things that build up that anticipate the arrival and the coming of Jesus and the work of Jesus for us, then you're, gonna, you're gonna not going not gonna to put all the weight and the significance upon Jesus that, you, that the scriptures call us to. Now, if you don't know the New Testament, you'll you won't understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises and everything the Old Testament anticipated. So you'll know Jesus is a big deal, but you won't really understand the depth of all that he's come to do for us. We need the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need them together. So you might think about it this way. Imagine today, um, there's a sporting event a little bit later. I'm not sure if you're aware, um, but it's kind of a big deal here, you know, for some people. And uh, not talking about the commercials, talking about the actual sporting event, the Super Bowl. And as you think about the Super Bowl, imagine that this afternoon you were going to go out to the boondocks somewhere. Uh, you're going to be in a cabin. You're going to be stuck by yourself. There's no internet. There's no cell coverage, except that you can get a couple texts in and out occasionally, right? And so you're going to miss the game and you're dying to find out what happened. So you're texting your spouse or your friends and going, hey, can you just keep me up on the game? And so you wait and you wait and wait, nothing comes. And then you finally get a text and the text says, man, let me tell you about the game. There's gonna be these two quarterbacks. One's really old and one's really young. In fact, the old guy was, won his first Super Bowl when the young guy uh, was in kindergarten. And so there's just a lot of anticipation about the game. And that's the whole message. And you're like, well, 
You know, I knew that. I knew that before today. I knew that last week. I knew that two weeks ago. Like that doesn't help me understand anything about the game. So then you wait a little longer. And then another text comes a little bit later and goes, man, it was amazing. The, the team stayed on the field for an hour and 15 minutes after the game. There was red, white, blue confetti. It was everywhere. The trophy looked like this and it describes the trophy. It talks about the music and talks about all the things, but it never tells you anything about who won or what happened in the game. How are you feeling about that if you're the guy who actually cares about the Super Bowl? I mean, you, you want to text back and go, hey, you forgot the main thing, right? Like you told me all the superfluous stuff, but you didn't tell me about the one thing I needed to know. The one thing that actually mattered was the sporting event that's called the Super Bowl that you completely left that out in all the story. Now, you kind of need to understand the main point in order to understand what it is that this whole thing is really about. You want to know about the game. So you can kind of see why that'd be a problem, right? Now, maybe you're not a football person, so let me go in a little different direction. Imagine it is a murder mystery and Someone takes a mystery book and they rip out the first part of the book and they rip out the last part of the book and they give first part of the book to one person and uh, that person and then gives the last part of the book to another person. So you go to the first person and what they know is they look and go, wow, there was a house party, there was a guest that came in and there was a, a house guest that was murdered in a horrific event. And that's all they know. And then you go to the person at the end of the story and what they see is they go, well, the butler did it. But they don't know anything about who died and why they did and how the, the mystery was solved. Well, it's not very satisfying either, is it? So you need, you need the beginning of the story, you need the end of the story, you need, you need to see the whole spectrum of it in order to understand the depth and the meaning of what the book is really about. Well, the Bible works the same way. That if you only have one part of the story, you're not gonna get the fullness of what it is that God wanted us to get. You're gonna miss the main point and you're gonna miss the way in which it all unfolds and the depth and the meaning of it all. Now, you may be asking, Okay, so how does this all connect with King David? Like this is an awful lot of stuff to begin a, a series on one king and one period of time and the Old Testament. Um, and so as we kind of think about that, I want us, to, I want us to, to, to look at, or really to try to answer that question. See, after the fall, God's plan for our rescue and our redemption includes God's promise of a king, a king who would come, a king who would be a righteous ruler, a king who would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And he promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, he gives David a promise of his kingdom. And in fact, God felt so strongly about this plan for his rescue and his redemption and his restoration of the world after sin came in the world and after the fall. He says, this is my plan. I feel so strongly about this plan that, uh, that he made it into an unconditional, unbreakable promise called a covenant. And God promised David's family that they would have a dynasty that would bring about peace for all the people, prosperity and wholeness, and they would flourish for all time. Second Samuel 7, let me just read part of that promise. The Lord told Nathan the prophet, say to my servant David, I will make for you a great name like, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And do you see that the, the, the nature of that promise is this kind of unconditional, absolute promise that God gave to, uh, to this man, David? He said, David, I brought you out of 
uh, being a little shepherd boy forgotten and I set you upon this throne and I promise you that you and your descendants will reign forever. And in fact, why that matters to us so much is that our, our ability to enjoy a good king and a forever kingdom hinges upon God's fulfillment of that promise to David. That we're just as dependent upon that as he is. Now here's where we run into a bit of a problem. This, David's story starts pretty well, but it gets really messy. And it doesn't take too long before things start to unravel. In fact, as we complete our study in 2 Samuel, the whole thing's just gonna be a train wreck. And I gotta tell you next week, like it's gonna be a little PG-13 because this thing gets, it just takes some ugly turns. Whenever you look at what happens in David and his family and the consequences of, of the brokenness that unravels in his family. And you're gonna see uh, his personal moral failure and the consequences from that. You're gonna see marriage issues, betrayal by friends and family, leadership meltdowns, parenting fiascos. Two of his sons are gonna be executed. One of his sons is a rapist. And so you look at that and you think, well, Jesus, that doesn't, I mean, Lord, that doesn't sound like the kingdom you promised to David is gonna happen. Then beyond just the mess in his family, what we know is David does begin a dynasty and it's, a pretty strong dynasty as far as king, earthly kingdoms go. Lasts a few hundred years, but it's certainly not forever. Like there's a time where all of Israel gets carried off into exile and there's no king upon the throne anymore. And you just think, well, is this thing completely lost? And Israel begins to think maybe this thing is lost and maybe God has forgotten about it. So it seems reasonable to ask for them, has God abandoned his promise? How are we to understand that? What we need to understand is that David began a partial kingdom, but it, there was still a perfect kingdom to come. And David, and it would be one from the line of David that would bring it about. So it's reasonable, I think, for us to ask, what are we supposed to learn from David's life? For, especially from the sinful, broken stuff. Like, why are we gonna spend the next six or seven weeks looking at this kind of yucky stuff that happens in David's life. There are some life lessons and some applications and some things that we can do and we can learn about how it is that we're to approach life. But I think one, I think there are a couple ways we can think about this. And here's why, why I wanna talk about this today. One approach would be to say, how can I live a better life than David? Like you might, you might look over the next six, seven weeks and we might look and go, well, David really messed up as a parent. I should be a better parent. Well, David really messed up as a husband. I should be a better husband. Well, David really messed up as a leader. I need to be a better leader. And all those things may be true. And generally speaking, like that's not a bad, that's not a bad goal in life either, is it? So like, well, I should be a good husband, a good father. I should be a good leader. I should be a good um, servant of others. I, th those aren't necessarily wrong things, but here's the thing. What is the main focus of, um, of our Bible study? There's two different approaches we could take there. We might say, what does this teach me about what I should be doing? But there may be another question, what does this teach me about what God is doing? And those two questions are gonna pull us in really different directions. What does this teach me about, about what I should be doing versus what, what does this teach me about what God is doing? And those, as I said, push us in different directions. So if you think about what, what, we're gonna, what I'm gonna call a Christ-centered approach to studying the Bible, remember what Jesus said at the very beginning in the passages we looked at. All of this points to Jesus. All of this points to him. And so as we look at David and as we begin to look at this, the question we need to ask is not just, oh, how can I be a better David? But is how, what does this tell me about Jesus? How does this point me to a savior? Because in the end, the way to find eternal life is to recognize 
Christ and what he's doing. And Jesus said that when we look at the scriptures, we're to look and say, and see what it says about who Jesus is and about what it is Jesus is doing. That ultimately that'll be our interpretive grid. So I want you to think this morning about two, two redemptive purposes for our Bible study. And so as we, as we look at the scripture, and this is true when you're at home and you're reading the Bible, this is true when you have your devotional life, it's true uh, when you're doing a Bible study, when you're in a small group and you're discussing these things, it's true uh, when we sit in here and we study David over the next six or seven weeks. These are the, the, the questions that we wanna to begin to ask. And there's two redemptive purposes, I think, for our Bible study. And uh, one is that uh, scripture exposes our need for a savior. Scripture shows us that we don't have it all together, that we look a lot like David. And so we need a savior just like David needs a savior. And the second purpose is scripture points us to our savior. So scripture draws our attention to the only one who can redeem our sin, who can reconcile our relationships, who can restore us to the right path. Jesus alone makes all things new. He, we can't save ourselves, we all need a savior. So as you think about your own personal Bible study and, and just how it is that you wanna to come to the scriptures over uh, the course of this year, let me give you a um, question just to ask. Uh, one of the questions you can ask yourself as you study the Bible is, what does this passage reveal about my spiritual brokenness that requires the redemptive work of Christ? What, is, what are the things that I'm reading? What does it reveal about my need for a savior, about my, my brokenness that points me in the direction of a savior named Jesus and the redemptive redemption that he brings? The fact is we all need a better plan. Not just a plan to be better people, but a better plan than anything we can accomplish for ourselves. We need a plan that's built upon a perfect savior who will bring a perfect kingdom who will deliver us forevermore. So that's why the Old Testament, as you think about David, I wanna give you just some highlights as we, as we compare David and we compare Jesus. See, when we look at David, what we see is David wasn't enough. David wasn't a good enough king to usher in a forever kingdom. David was a partial, he brought a, he brought a partial kingdom. And in, in some senses, David brought the, the kingdom of Israel at the time of David was the best the kingdom ever got. He, he did a better job than any other king that followed after him. In fact, all the other kings that, that were measured were measured against the standard of David from then on and said, well, he walked in the ways of David or he did not walk in the ways of David, meaning he was a good king or bad king, but David wasn't good enough, even as good as he was. In fact, the New Testament refers to David 59 times. And in that, it's just saying, David was as good as it ever got through an earthly king who was just a man. And David was a man after God's own heart and he still fell short. So as you think about this, we needed a better David, didn't we? We needed a David who could bring about all those promises and bring about a perfect kingdom. So the Old Testament points forward. Remember we said the Old Testament points forward and anticipates the coming of Jesus? And then we said the New Testament's gonna look back at all the fulfillment of those promises. Well, when, let's think about the way David's gonna point forward. David, uh, the Old Testament points forward to Jesus as a better shepherd. See, although David starts out well, he finishes poorly. He acts selfishly rather than sacrificially in the care of his kingdom. See, a good, a good shepherd would lay down his life for the sake of his lambs. In fact, you see David doing that when the story opens. David's a shepherd and it says that he's, he's fighting lions, he's fighting bears, he's doing whatever it would take in order to deliver his sheep and protect them. He's putting his life on the line in order to, to guard the sheep that are under his care. But then when David becomes a king, he's not a good shepherd. In fact, he begins to use 
some of the people in his kingdom. He begins to abuse some of the people in his kingdom. He begins to, uh, to sacrifice their lives for his own good. He's not a good shepherd. One man wrote, David will not be the good shepherd who will give his life for the sheep. We must keep reading in order to find another. But you love that. John 10.10 says, uh, this is Jesus and he, in the New Testament. He says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus was a better shepherd than David. He was willing to lay down his life for us. The Old Testament also points forward to Jesus as a better king. Two sections in particular in the Old Testament speak of Jesus as king. One is Isaiah 7 to 12, and that points forward in, in, in those chapters. You may go back and read. I won't have time to dig in there today, but they point forward to Jesus as a future king. The other is a group of Psalms known as the Royal Psalms. And the Royal Psalms look forward to a king who's going to be universally opposed and face great opposition, yet become victorious to establish a rule that's full of justice and kindness and goodness, peace, prosperity, wholeness, and he's faithful to the Lord forevermore. Psalm 45, one of those Psalms says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. See, Jesus is the king David could never be. Jesus is the king who fulfilled the promises and David could bring a partial kingdom, but Jesus is gonna bring the perfected kingdom. Revelation 22, uh, at the very end, the last chapter of the scripture says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb, the lamb's Christ, through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and then his name shall be on their foreheads and night will be no more. And there'll be no more need of light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So Jesus was the king David could never be. He was a better king. The Old Testament also points forward to Jesus as a better warrior. And Dillard Longman wrote about Jesus and said, just as David had once gone single-handed into combat with a great enemy of Israel named Goliath, so too Jesus would single-handedly triumph over the enemy of our souls. Friends, David went single-handedly into battle to deliver Israel from their enemy, Goliath, the giant. Jesus single-handedly went into battle to deliver us from the giants of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was a better warrior than David. David defeated Goliath. Jesus defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death. And he stands victorious. So friends, what do we do with all this? And is this, is this good news for us? Because when I, when I look at the life of David, here's what I realize. David was a pretty good man as far as men go. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was just a man. If the man after God's own heart fell short, surely I'm gonna fall short too. If the man after God's own heart didn't fully measure up, I'm probably gonna fail to measure up too. In fact, the Bible says that we all sin and fall short of the goodness and glory of God. None of us arrive on our own. And so as we look at the scriptures, as we study the scriptures, 
Can I encourage you, don't look at it and just say, how can I be better? How can I do more? How can I try harder? How can I be more successful? How can I find tips for a better life? But let it surface for you how you need a savior and let it point you to the one who came as your savior. He's a better shepherd. He's a better king. He's a better warrior. He will care for you more fully. He'll provide for you a kingdom that lasts without end, that's full of flourishing. He's a warrior who's already won your victory. He's won your battle for you. And so you can rest in him. And that's good news, isn't it? Aren't you glad we have a savior? Aren't you glad it's not up to us? Aren't you glad you don't have to outwork David, outmoral David, outstrive David, outdevotion David, but that you, like David, can at the end of your life come and say, I'm dependent upon your grace, O Lord. So David at the end would look to Christ and he would own his son and Christ, and he would look to the Lord and, and, and he would own his son and God, his heavenly father, would preserve and protect him. And he, so he would hang on to the promise that one day someone from his line would come who would be better. So friends, as we study the life of David in the weeks to come, David will give us a partial kingdom. And I just hope that whets our thirst for a perfect kingdom, a kingdom that's even better than the one he experienced because Jesus Christ is the coming king from the line of David who will lay down his, his life as our good shepherd, who will restore a kingdom for us that never ends and who is a warrior fighting, who's fought for us, delivering us from all things. That's, a good, that's good news for us. But friends, as we think about that, some of you may need to hear this truth today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the story. When we come to study the scriptures, there's, there's one connected story. There's one coherent message. There's one supreme author. There's one main, one big idea. There's one divine purpose and it's our restoration through the person of Jesus who will one day return and give us a final kingdom. So our trust is in him. You look into him and if you don't know him, I just tell you, you need a savior. All the scriptures tell us. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, you got two chapters at the front where things are good and you got two chapters at the back and everything in between says you need a savior. And it reminds us and it points to him. So might today be the day where you surrender and you admit and acknowledge your need for a savior named Jesus. So we're here today to proclaim that he loves you. And if you believe in him, he'll give you life, new life and forever life. And for those of us who are believers, we need to hang on to that truth too, don't we? As we come to scriptures, we, we know we need a savior and we continually to come to him and trust him and focus our attention on Christ. So let me give you two questions to reflect on kind of as we wrap up today. And then I wanna pray for us. One, what is God saying to you about your need for a savior? And secondly, what is God saying to you about Jesus, your rescuer and king? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for each man and woman in this room and those watching online. Father, would you meet us where we are? Father, would you convince us that like David, man, there's good and there's bad. 
There's things that cause you to rejoice and things that cause you to grieve, Lord. Father, there's, uh, there's things that, that you look in and you see the beauty of what you intended your creation to be. And there's things that, that show off the brokenness of what sin has made this world. And so, Father, we come acknowledging our need for a Savior. But we also come in gratitude, knowing that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ was buried and Christ was raised again. And in him, we know that new life is available, that grace and mercy will meet us as we, as we return to him by faith. And Father, we long for the day when he returns to establish his perfect kingdom. And Jesus, we wait for you. We love you. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.